right, as we jump into the text. Uh, I recognize that um, I'm speaking, if I could say it this way, to kind of a mixed bag of perspective. I'm speaking to a mixed bag of perspective, right? So as you hear this, there may be, you may be saying, uh-uh, no, uh-uh, no, no, uh-uh, uh-uh. And, and I, all I want you to do is to take it in and at least evaluate it. Um, because the point of the matter is this, is that uh, the Galatians were struggling with the law of the Old Testament. You remember? They were struggling with whittling Jesus down to this kind of small Christ Christianity and adding then the Old Testament law, circumcision in particular. Right? Now, I don't know about you, but you know, we didn't stand at the doors this morning making sure that all the dudes who rolled through, you know, you, you right with God, you circumcised, you're right, we, all, we, we good, we're all together. Like, that's not, like, that doesn't even make sense to us. We don't sit there in membership classes, you know, which we'll be doing next month, uh, and, uh, you know, questioning circumcision. We're, we're, not, we're not confused with the Old Testament law, as the Galatians were. But folks, there is a law that we are confused with. It's not the Hebrew law of the Old Testament. It's the American law of self. All right, let that sink in. It's the American law of self. You're not adding Old Testament regulation to Jesus. What we do as the American church is add the American law of self to Jesus. And it does the exact same thing that those in Galatia were doing. To, it whittles Jesus down to this small, inconsequential Savior. It's a small Christ Christianity where Christ can no longer demand my surrender. He can no longer demand my sacrifice. He can no longer put a calling upon my life. He can no longer require my tithe to him. He can't order my week. He can't demand my time. He can't tell me that I must shut off that Netflix series, right, that is only filling your mind with a bunch of endless affairs, conflicts, and violence. He can't determine how much you eat or how much you drink. That's hands off, Jesus. Hands off, Jesus, on my life. You don't get a say in these things. Folks, this is the real drift of the American church. This is the real small Christ Christianity that the Western church is suffering from. This is the same issue that, in my own heart, I suffer from. As we had mentioned uh, last week, you know, we come to find that Galatians is really written for a bunch of dopey, hard-hearted Christians just like me and you, right? We're in that. We're broken down. We, 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 we run to self. Again, not to the Old Testament law, but to the law of self. Um, let me skip. I, by the way, I got more information than what we probably need this morning. I want to remind you that the whole point of the gospel the whole point of who Jesus is and why he came for you is so that you would die 
to you. So that, as Paul has said in Galatians chapter 2, so that Christ might live in you. So that all the issues, all the issues, all the issues of identity, all the issues of worth, all the issues of purpose might be altogether satisfied in the whole and perfect man, the man Christ Jesus. But a Christianity where Christ but serves the self becomes only a shadow of the substance. It becomes but a mannequin, a presentation of life that lacks a pulse, that lacks the ability to breathe and move. Folks, I... I'm afraid for the American church that we are a mannequin Christianity. We are becoming irrelevant to this world by making ourselves like the world, dead. Just a small Christ Christianity where Jesus is inconsequential to the self. Again, we aren't adding Jewish law to Christ. We are adding the American law of self to Christ. So, you got your hand in the... Book of Romans? Let's go there first. And we're going to try to create some clarity here. Paul, in the book of Romans, will present the gospel to a church, to a church community made up both of Jews and Gentiles. So the Jews, of course, they're struggling with wanting to keep to the Old Testament law, while the Gentiles aren't, kind of like us, right? We are mostly Gentiles. Uh, We are individuals who aren't struggling with that circumcision stuff. We're we're struggling with our own stuff, our own self-established standards for living. And Romans 1 begins to explain something of that standard. If we're not struggling with God's Old Testament law, we're struggling with something of our own law, setting up our own standards. So Romans chapter 1, and we're going to read a little bit, so just hang on, engage your minds. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 states this. This is written primarily for the Gentile folks who aren't struggling with the Old Testament law. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So what people are saying is, I don't want that God truth. I'm suppressing it. Okay. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. God's like, I'm real. I've shown it to you. How has God shown people that he's real? Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So... Those who suppress the truth are without excuse. They look at creation and say, no, that doesn't point to God. That points to whatever, science. But God says, I've shown them myself, and therefore they are without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile, empty in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, this is important, claiming to be wise, (laughs) they became what? Fools. 
and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God's like, hey, if that's what you want, I'm giving you up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up again to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, maliciousness. They are full of envy, murder. Sound familiar? Strife, deceit, oh, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Verse 32, this is important. For though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give what? <coughs> Approval to those who practice them. The Gentiles establish their own standard. In other words, the Jews struggling with God's standards, but the Gentiles went ahead and established their own stand standards. So, their own godless law they established. Verse 22, it says they became wise, right? That is, they claimed to have discovered the pathway, the standard for human flourishing. This is how the good life happens, folks. That, that's what the Gentiles are saying. Give up all your sexual ethics. Give up this God, this, these, this morality, and create your own standard. Oh, aren't we wise? We have found the pathway to human flourishing. They claim to be wise. But then, verse 32, you can flip to the next. Uh, I, I, I think it's in it. There, great. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give what? Approval. Approval. So on one hand, we've discovered the way to human flourishing. We claim to be wise. We figured it out. And then we establish a law of justice approval that attends that claim of wisdom to say that now our standard is a matter of justice. Does that sound familiar to this world? It's all to say that if we aren't given to God's law, Romans 1 says, we will be given to our own. We will create our own law. Where we're not confused with God's law, we will, in some sense, be confused with our own law. We'll establish our own way of living. All right, now flip the page to Romans chapter 2, verse 12. Romans chapter 2, verse 12, demonstrates how these people, these Gentile folks who are creating their own way, pioneering their own path, it talks about how they one day will be judged. 
Remember, we've talked about how God's law establishes transgression. And if that's the case for God's people, then how will the Gentiles' transgression be established if they didn't keep to God's law? I hope you're following with I know I'm, this is like a confusing thing, but I'm, I'm going somewhere with it, so hang on. Romans chapter 2, uh, actually verse 14, states this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, the Old Testament law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they don't have the law. They show, he's explaining, they show that the work of the law is written on their what? Hearts. Hearts. So even people who don't have God's law, moral standard, his moral standard, God has written it upon their hearts. So they're aware of morality in some sense, to some degree, right? While then their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Again, there are those who don't care about the Old Testament law. We're not confused about circumcision, but God has taken that law, written it on their hearts. So one day when they enter into glory and they have to stand before God and be judged, the the law that God has placed upon their hearts will give witness to them that they have fallen short of the very standard that has been written on their hearts. And... Not only will they be judged by God's law that has been written on their hearts, but they'll be judged by the law that they've set up for themselves. That never brought the human flourishing they said it would. When they claimed to be wise and said, we figured this out. Here, abandon all sexual ethic. Let's just do what we want. Let's just immerse ourselves in our own dreams, our own passions. Let's find the answer within. Self-actualization. This is what's preached in our culture today. You got the answer within. You got to believe in yourself. You will be judged by that law one day. You'll stand before the glory of the Son of God and he will judge those very people for how they claim to be wise, but their standard never satisfied. They still stand with conflicting thoughts that either excuse them or accuse them. Isn't that something? God's God's like, okay, we'll try your way. Let's see how that went for you. That's what's going to happen in glory. He'll take their own law and hold it against them. Was it truly satisfying? You know, you find folks, and and just to kind of riff off of Romans chapter 1, you have folks coming out of uh, same-sex attraction, for instance, and those are real battles. I'm not, let's not be a church who is self-righteous towards individual struggles. But so many of the folks that come from that kind of way of life say, yeah, we we claim that we were satisfied. We claim that we finally found some sort of freedom. And all it was was further bondage. It's the testimony. One day, all that stuff is going to be revealed at the judgment seat. God's going to be like, that's the way you wanted to live? That's the standard? 
You're not satisfied. You're not satisfied. People are just left empty and conflicted. Oh, they claim to be wise. They establish a standard of justice to attend their sense of wisdom, but their own law never can bring them peace. So, again, stay with me. Uh, last spring, uh, Dan Foster and I, uh, at our kind of regional meetings with some of our churches, uh, got together and we're sitting at lunch, uh, having a conversation of uh, the benefits of psychology to the church. All right, now I had to be straight with folks because I've, I've gone like full circle with all this stuff, studied it for years now, trying to figure out, okay, how is psychology and the church supposed to function together? And so I, I told this particular guy who was there, he's, a, uh, he was, he's finishing up his PhD in psychology and I had, I'd had to tell him like, I find as a pastor that there is more work to undo in moments of counseling because of psychology rather than it opening up way to point to Jesus. I feel like there's more dismantling work that I have to do, reconstructive work that I have to do for people to get them to the feet of Jesus, those who have kind of been through kind of instruction in psychology. And he said, and this is paraphrasing him, he says that's interesting because as psychologists we don't view those principles of self as law. A paraphrasing. He said, actually we see it as theory. And now more and more, since there's been so many decades to evaluate these theories of the self, we see them as having failed. He says, we are back to the drawing board as psychologists. On one, on one hand, I'm just like, well, why don't you plaster that over every like billboard along 95? Psychology has failed, says the scholars of psychology. <laughs> plaster it all over the place. Because the fact is, our culture has been so immersed in self-actualization. Our movies preach it, our sitcoms preach it, bad preachers preach it, and bad hearers of even good preachers wrongly apply it. Remember, if you walk away from a sermon, a sitcom, or a movie more confident in yourself than in Christ, you have been duped. You have been bewitched. Or Paul will say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, you, it's, it's, you're demonized. But by the way... Um, this also can apply in ways in which, and I'm, I'm, for this it might go over some of your heads, and that's okay. Like, um, we can also, as individuals given to this law of self, misapply some of the glorious doctrines of Scripture. We can misapply Reformed theology, for any of you who understand that term. We can misapply it by emphasizing God's sovereignty at the expense of man's responsibility. Or we can emphasize Christian liberty at the expense of Christian piety. And in so doing, we keep Christ inconsequential. It's where, once again, he can't demand anything of me. God's sovereignty is just going to be able to do what he wants to do. He doesn't need me to go witness to other people. He doesn't need to go uh, have me go pray for those in need of healing. No, he's just going to do what he's going to do anyway, so it doesn't matter if I even apply myself. 
That's wrong. Absolutely wrong. But we excuse ourselves with misapplied theology. Sometimes folks who know a lot of theology, it only gives them reason to excuse themselves before Christ. To do exactly what Romans 1 is saying. We just justify our ways with all the big theology that we know. And so we are individuals, oftentimes, that we can excuse ourselves of of any kind of responsibility by emphasizing other aspects of, of theology so that God can't demand anything of me. It's small Christ Christianity. I eat, I drink, I enjoy sports. James told me that Monday game is tomorrow, right? All right, so we enjoy sports, we seek rest, we seek comfort. We perhaps work really, really long days. All for the glory of God, of course. But for many of us, and I know I'm guilty of this, for the glory of God has just become a slogan to justify the desires and agenda of the self. In fact, Paul will warn us of this in Galatians chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 13, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So, whether it's the world of psychology and the law of self represented there, or the world of theology, where the law of self can be represented there as well, we are probably more enslaved to the law of self than we realize. Me, me, me. It's about my self-esteem. It's about how I'm doing. I'm self-concerned. I'm self-determined. And more than not, I'm self-depleted. I can't be the answer. I can't fill what is lacking in me. I am not the answer to me. The gospel says I got to die to me. So, back to Galatians chapter 3. Flip back there. I want to give you four summary statements from Galatians chapter 3 regarding this law of self. Again, if you're tracking, whether it's the law of the Old Testament and the confusion that the Galatians were having, or it's the law of self that we struggle with today, the principles of Galatians 3 apply the same. One day, man will be judged by both. The law of God and the law that he has set up for himself that didn't satisfy. So let's get into it. Galatians chapter 3, the first summary statement is this. The law, even the law of self, cannot bring about the power we need. It cannot bring about the power we need. Look at verse 2 of Galatians chapter 3. It states this. Did you receive the Spirit? Remember, that is an ecstatic, conscious experience of encountering God? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? We could say, did you receive it by the law of self, self self-actualization, or did you experience it through hearing with faith? Verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected, made mature in Christ by the flesh? Are you now relying on yourself, your own claimed wisdom, And all the approval that you say comes with that. Is is that what's going to perfect you, grow you in Jesus? Verse 5, 
Did he who supplied the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you going to encounter great, grand, miraculous things through the Spirit as you rely on yourself? No! You won't gain a conscious relationship with the Holy Spirit, nor grow in the Spirit, nor experience miracles in the Spirit apart from faith in Christ. Self has to die. The flesh has to be considered dead with Christ. To embrace this law, then, of self is like, once again, exchanging a nuclear reactor for but a few AA batteries. Right? It's, it's to exchange, as we've talked about, the lion of the tribe of Judah for just that house cat. The law of self cannot bring about the power that we need in this life. You can't grow in your relationship with the Lord by always making provision for the self. The self must die. It must be crucified with Christ, all of me, for all of him. You want power to overcome addiction? You want power to overcome the enemy's hold on your life? You want power to overcome anxieties? You want power to overcome most of depression? It ain't going to happen by relying on yourself. It is going to happen by dying to yourself and running to Christ. Uh, I had an impression uh, for Thursday night, but it applies here as well. You know, just talking with the Lord, what do, Lord, what do you want for us as a church? And, and he gave me the picture. I, I was actually filling my car with gas at the time. He gave me a picture of this schoolyard and all these little kids on their little bikes with training wheels. And everybody had training wheels. And everyone's just cruising around in the schoolyard. And, and, and they're all shouting to one another about how you're supposed to ride your bike without training wheels. Now, so they're instructing one another how to actually ride without the assistance of the training wheels. You know, this is how you, you put your foot here and you, you push forward and it propels you. and you, 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 you get a little bit of, you know, momentum going that way. And they're talking to one another like that as they're all still riding around on training wheels. And as soon as they think, oh, maybe I should take off the training wheels, they'd go back to instructing one another. They, they, they didn't want to take the risk. I might fall. We took to Jabari out to the park not too long ago. It's like, he's like, Dad, I'm going to fall. It's like, yeah, yeah, you will. You will absolutely fall. This will be a falling exercise, right? And so that's why we went out to the grass, and, and, and he's going to have a soft fall, so to speak. But here are all these kids in this impression. No, we're not going to take the risk. As soon as we begin thinking about that risk, no, 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 let's just talk more about what it is to ride the bike without the training wheels, but let's keep the training wheels on. That's the church. Give us this psychology of the self so we can feel good and comfortable and, 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 and in control of life. I'll, I'll boost my self-esteem by the credentials that I can get, by the things that I achieve, by the work that I do. And, and you're, you're dying inside. You can't be for yourself what the infinite God alone can be for you. That's what's twisted. It's what is twisted. Your self-esteem, your worth, is to be determined by an infinite God. It's him and him alone. 
It's he who must be the one who supplies the power that we need. Now, let's get on to the next summary statement. Second summary statement. The law of self cannot bring about, check it out, the belonging we need. The law of self can't give you the power you need, but it also can't give you the belonging you need. Look at verse 7. Know then that, those, that, that it is those of faith who are what? Sons. Sons. Oh, man, just sit on that word. <laughs> That's family language. We love family, right? We love family relationships. We love that substantial sense of belonging. And he's saying it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. They are the ones who belong. And verse 8 then in Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, again, not by law, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Not by works of the law, right? Not by the law of self. Look, stop looking for belonging in this world. Our culture presents a buffet of social groups, AA, NA, political groups, sport clubs, CrossFit, and endless community, whatever you want, endless communities. And our culture presents all kinds of, I'm riffing off of uh, Romans 1 again, our culture presents all kinds of sexual ethics that promise this satisfaction of belonging. Every broken person that I've in interacted with who have struggled with um, sexual sin, you know what they're looking for? They aren't looking for one-off, like, wonderful moment. They're looking just for peace and comfort. Just for some, even if it's a false intimacy, even if it's a false sense of belonging, at least I'm feeling something of belonging. At least someone wants to be with me. I know stories of guys heading down to Kensington, pick up prostitutes. It's not about the sexual interaction. It's just about her willingness to step into the car and to be with me. People are deeply hungry for belonging. And this creation, looking for it this way, cannot satisfy. It will not bring the belonging that you so deeply need and want. Is anyone satisfied in this world with their sense of belonging? No. Stop looking for belonging in this world. In fact, 1 John, Larry's been studying 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. This world is passing away and the lust of it. Now, I don't know about all the wounds or scars that you bear in relationship to others. But I want to say this, as important as those relationships are, and may God bring healing grace to them, even the reconciliation of those relationships won't establish your need for belonging. You get it? Should I say it again? I don't know all the wounds and scars that you bear in relationship to others. But even the reconciliation of those relationships, even the healing of those relationships, won't establish your need for belonging. 
it won't satisfy you. Well, I didn't have a good dad. Whatever your story is, I didn't have a good marriage. You don't know what happened to me. I didn't have that family of love, security, and trust. I didn't have it. I wasn't given it. Even if you are given it by God's grace, what a gift it would be, it still won't satisfy your need for belonging. Do you know why? Because you were never made to be satisfied in relationship this way. True belonging, true satisfaction is to be found in relationship this way. It's Him. Again, you were made for an infinite God. That's an infinite desire of belonging that can't be satisfied in the person next to you. It's only satisfied in the infinite God through Jesus Christ. That's why He's saying, it's by faith as a gift that you get to belong in the family of God, become a son of Abraham. Those are no small words. We just blaze through that stuff. And it's hidden on all the stuff that our world is just broken about. Hallelujah. Speaking, brother. Folks, we're hurt. our world is hurting. But I don't want you to look out there. Here. The church is hurting. There's so much that I just want to say. Because the church is not what it's supposed to be. It is not what it's supposed to be. We are, we are far more given to this law of self than what we realize. We always want to tend to self, 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 self. And what we really need is found in Jesus. It's found in Jesus. As the text goes on, law won't give you the belonging that you want. This world won't provide the belonging that you want. It can't bless you with Abraham's blessing. It can only, just like the Old Testament law does, it can only curse you. So, verse 10, Galatians chapter 3, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a what? Curse. And remember, Romans 2, certainly the law that God has placed on people's hearts will curse them. It'll condemn them. But so will all the failed attempts of our law of self. For the conflict within that still remains, for all the ways that our law of self did not satisfy our sense of belonging, it will be that which condemns man. God will be saying, were you satisfied by your own ways? And he will see deep into man's hearts. And he will see the emptiness, the conflicting thoughts. But look at verse 13. Who has become a curse for us? Jesus, the Christ, our curse for his blessing, our condemnation for his belonging. In Christ, we belong. In Christ alone, we are sons and we are daughters. We belong. All right, third summary statement. You still with me? We hanging in there? All right, keep focused. Only two more, and they're brief, kind of. All right, third, the law of self cannot bring about the righteousness we need. All right, so so we talked about power. We talked about belonging, and now it's righteousness. 
So in verses 15 through 18, again, I'm summarizing some things. We see that the law didn't replace God's saving promise in Christ. Even the Old Testament law didn't replace Jesus. Rather, verse 19, the law was added because of transgression. Or verse 22 says, Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Law was added to establish the transgression. Law was added to demonstrate, yo, you're a sinner. You failed, right? Or as we kind of gave analogy, remember the law was added as that MRI. Can an MRI bring a cure to you? No, what does it do? It just reveals. It just shows the mess that's there. It shows that you're terminal. It shows the cancer within, right? That's what the law does. It can only establish your guilt. Or the law is that drug dog, if you remember. Sniffs out all that condemning evidence. The law can only imprison us. It can only declare us, remember, as that dead man walking. That's all the law can do. It can't freely, verse 21, notice it, it can't give life. It can only state you're dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. It can't cleanse your guilt. It can't cover your shame. It can't forgive your sins. It can't make you pure. It can't make you pure. I ought to just hold on to that. It can't make you pure. Remember hearing the stories of folks who were uh, sexually hurt. They'd be run into that shower got to get clean, I got to get clean, I got to get clean. And our world says, oh, no, 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 no. If we could just look within, you have the answer to take away that feeling of impurity. We're, we're giving... That's giving a world a bunch of false answers. A bunch of empty hope. Here's the answer (laughs) that doesn't have any answer to it. Remember, it's only Jesus. It's only Jesus. The law but imprisons us. The law but tells us that we're not what we are to be. The law only points out our shame. It only points out our impurity. It can only do that. But, verse 22, there is one whom the law could not imprison. There is one whom the law had no power to condemn. The MRI of the law investigated the Son of Man and found him perfect. He wasn't terminal at all. He was life and life in abundance. The drug dog tried to sniff him out but found absolutely no evidence for his condemnation. It's why the gospel of John in chapter 1 verse 14 says it this way, the word became flesh and we beheld his glory full, brimming over with grace and truth. John is saying he was just so different than us. He was so different. He was the perfect man. He was the whole man. You brush into him a little bit and he just spills over with grace and truth. There was a glory, a righteousness that permeated from him. 
if you were to pull back the curtain on who he was, you just would behold endless layers to the glory of the spotless Lamb of God. And as such, it's he who became for us the dead man walking. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He alone then can set the captives free. He alone can cure the soul. He alone can make the guilty not just innocent, but righteous before the holy standard of God. The law no longer then has power to condemn those in Christ. So verse 22, the scripture is freely imprisoned Everything under sin, everything's condemned, everything's held captive so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be freely given to those who believe. The law, even the law of self, cannot bring about the righteousness, the forgiveness, the cleansing, and the covering we need. Only Jesus makes us white as snow. Only Jesus can take the damage of our souls and overhaul them into something beautiful and wonderful again. Only Jesus. Finally, fourth summary statement. The law of self cannot bring about the unity we need. In verse 23, we are reminded that the law imprisoned man, condemned man, uh, but also acted then as this tutor, as as James had mentioned last week. It, It was a guardian. It was a pedagogue, right? What it did was it held up before humanity what is right and wrong and thereby kind of curbed some of the destructiveness of evil in some sense at least. But this guardian of the Old Testament law couldn't establish family relationship, right? It couldn't make us belong. It couldn't make you, verse 26, a son of God. It couldn't fashion for you a family of belonging. It couldn't unite people together. The law cannot unite people together. It couldn't reconcile our differences. It couldn't squelch our assumed inequalities. And even the law of self, which permeates our society today, tells everyone to cry out for their equal rights. But folks, it's like a pendulum swinging back and forth. As soon as our culture tries to rectify one injustice or one kind of proclaimed inequality, we are leaving then someone else out. And so it's swinging then to one side, rectifying one, and oh, we got to get over here to make this equal. And then over here to get, oh, someone else is crying out for their rights. And so we're split in all kinds of different ways. There is no true kind of equilibrium for the pendulum of justice to actually function and work. There is no clear, understood, objective definition to equality or justice in the world. Why? Because we're all after our own rights. Even if part of what you're saying is true, well, guess who's involved in saying that it's true? You, right? And you bring a mess to the table because you're imperfect, 
just like me. And so the pendulum swings and swings and swings. It has no true equilibrium. It can't bring people together. It can only fracture things. It can only create more and more and more of the conflict. So our culture then has no equilibrium to it. Folks, which is just a recipe for endless conflict. Paul will actually reference uh, this later in chapter 5, verse 5, saying that if the church is given to these kinds of laws, the church will only bite and devour one another. It's only going to become like the world, producing more and more and more conflict. Don't hear what I'm not saying in all of this. There are issues of justice that need to be dealt with in our world, but our world doesn't have the answer. The answer is not found within self. But there is a way for us to know unity, right? There is a way for us to know unity. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Remember, we die to ourselves to live to Christ. There is, therefore, neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all what? One. One. One, that's amazing language, one in Christ. True family, true unity can only be found in Christ. It's not as though all our differences in culture or gender or class is taken away. But it all becomes secondary to who we are now in Christ. In all our given differences, Jesus becomes the foundation of our worth. He becomes the essence of our significance. He becomes the sum of our righteousness. And he becomes our standing in the family. He is our all when it comes down to it. Therefore, to make Christ inconsequential to the self is to bring division into the family. To give self a place, other than it being crucified with Christ, is just to put a breach in the unity of Christ's family. The best way to experience unity is for each Christian to take up the responsibility to die to self, so that together we might live unto Christ. Get it? Side note to anything I've prepared. Our differences are glorious. They're beautiful. The cultures we come from, male versus female, <laughs> it's beautiful. Beautiful differences. But only when Christ becomes our true significance and worth, when our sense of significance and worth isn't fundamentally placed in our differences. Let me just tell you, your significance and worth doesn't come from your culture. You carry that. You carry it with honor. Ha ha, that's where I came from. But the fundamental reality of your significance and worth is Jesus. 
everybody's culture, everybody's background comes with a mess. The United States has a history that is a mess. We are politically divided. That's what Tom was praying earlier. Yep. Used to be carpet. That's separated. The different parties, but now it's a canyon, as he prayed. And it is true. We have all this division. We have all this division. Folks, it's time for the church to shine. This is like, this, is the, this should be the glory days of the Western church. We have so much in Christ to shine with. A world that is desperately looking for unity. A world that is desperately looking for belonging. A world that is desperately looking for power. How do I break this addiction? The church should be standing up saying, we got a powerful Jesus. He's amazing. Here's, though, what gets in the way of the church shining. Us continuing to live by the law of self. Oh, I got Jesus, but, you know, I got to deal with my self-esteem, and then I got to make sure I'm, I'm achieving things and accomplishing things, and then I'm the, just the best parent ever, right? And I got to be the best dad and best mom, and I got to do all these things. And who's that focused on? You, 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 you. You can't fill your own cup. You weren't made for that. Be, be all that stuff for the glory of God. Which means, oh Lord, I need the power that only you can give. <laughs> I need that belonging that only you can give. I need that sense of righteousness that only you can give. Oh Lord, I, I, I need the unity that only you can give. For all the ways in, we, in which we might be keeping the self of, alive, and for all the ways in which we might be living like the world, giving the self something of a place of expression, God's acceptance of us is not based on us. Isn't that good? That's good news right there. That, like, I just took the burden. I've placed a lot of burden on you, and I just took it off <laughs> and threw it on Jesus. We're going to mess up, aren't we? We're, we're, we're going to be self-concerned, self-focused, how am I doing, and all this kind of stuff, and, and you're going to be self-depleted. Uh, and let's be honest, it's sin. It rages against the cross. It rages against all that Jesus is for us. And so it's, okay, self has fallen off the altar of surrender. All right, Jesus, I'm bringing, I'm coming home, bringing myself, laying myself on that altar again. And Jesus says, there's always a way back to the altar. Why? Because Jesus has paved the way. There is no separation. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. No adversary, no mistake. You know, I, I read that Romans uh, 8 passage, you know, where we are more than conquerors in Christ and nothing can separate us. I, I, I've, I've read that for years, and I, it's like, man, height, depth, breadth, and all that other kind of stuff is dwarfs in comparison to me being the problem and God's love for me. 
I'm the one who's messed up. I'm the one that if, if, if there could be a separation in God's love, it would be me. I made the stupid decisions. I became self-focused. The Lord says, no, then even in all your mistakes, your love isn't going to separate, or my love isn't going to be separated by your stupidity. There's always a way back to the altar. There's always a way back home. So, let's just remember, folks, that it's all of me for all of him. He's, he's just saying, all right, whatever slipped off it, come on, bring it back. It's time to lay it on the altar again, all of me for all of him. And that, once again, is a good exchange. We get Jesus. Wonderful, wonderful Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your, your goodness and kindness to us. And Lord, how how we have tried to fill up our own cups. <laughs> uh, how we have tried to bring worth and significance to our lives. How we have tried to <laughs> kind of mask up all the brokenness that we carry. How we've tried to just kind of duct tape together all the wounds that we bear. And Lord, it's all of that that you want us to bring to you. It's all of that in which you want us to say, no, 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 don't fill your own cups. I'm the fountain of life. I'm the one who alone can bring satisfaction to your weary soul. Isaiah Chapter 25 states this. For you, O Lord God, you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. There's a real adversary <laughs> who wants you to depend upon you. And he comes at you like a storm, but God is like a wall for you. It states, you, O Lord, subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. When the, when the heat of the enemy comes, when there is this push to turn into self, to be a solution for yourself. Oh, the Lord is like this rain cloud that just comes over you, hides you from the heat of those temptations, so that the song of the ruthless one is put down. <laughs> Satan is boasting. I got them to trust in themselves. I got them to trust in themselves. He's singing a song over us. He's singing a victory dance over us. I got them to trust in themselves. I got them to think that they could fill up their own cup. But it's our God. It's our God who brings the song of the ruthless down. He brings it down. Oh, Satan, you had your day. 
You had your moment over my people, but I'm bringing that song down. There's another victory song that my people get to sing. They get to sing about my Jesus. He came. He gave them what they need. He will be their fountain of life. He will be their satisfaction. He will be their wall of protection. He will be their fortress. He will be that rain cloud on a very hot day. He will be what they need. So Lord, be what we need. <laughs> Keep us from ourselves and be what we need. Fill our cups, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
and say, there's stuff that you're holding on to that you need the Lord to help you to release. Please come and speak to us. As we think about the great need that our world, our city, that our neighborhoods has, that our own church has, with this stuff, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to work among us. Thursday at 5.30, we're going to the neighbors and knock on the doors and to give them something of that Lord to minister to them. That is the work of the church. He's called us to that. He's empowered us for that. And he sent us until Thursday at 5.30. We're going to take that glorious grace and that mercy to the neighbors. And there's, if the church doesn't stand up now, who will? So with that being said, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to work among us. It's for that reason that Paul says again and again that according to the riches of Christ's glory, he may grant us to be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith so that we may be rooted and grounded in love and have the strength to comprehend with all the saints Know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever. Amen. Amen. Grace and peace, God bless you.